Welcome to Making Waves. You can listen to Making Waves monthly on WGXC Wave Farm, and you can also visit past shows uh, through various podcast apps, including Wave Farm's own podcast app. Making Waves is uh, produced from South River, Ontario, and it's produced by an organization called NASA, or New Adventures in Sound Art. And I'm the Artistic Director, Darren Copeland. And uh, next month in January of 2019, NASA will be hosting an interactive artwork by Jane Tingley called Anywhere. We'll be talking to Jane about that piece and uh, how the kind of worlds of gaming and sculpture converge in uh, interesting ways to create a very unique form of interaction uh, for the audience. But before uh, joining our conversation, I thought it'd be helpful to listen in to this uh, video clip, uh, if you if you will, uh, which describes Anywhere, and I think it will give you an overview of the piece um, and the way that it uh, that it works. If you want to see the video yourself, you can go to the website of Jane Tingley's collaborator, Cindy Paremba. Her website is shinyspinning.com. Anywhere is an Internet of Things distributed sculpture that includes three identical objects that can be placed in three different locations anywhere in the world. Each location is assigned a location color, which then makes it possible to identify which location is actively engaging with which sculpture. The sculptures encourage nonverbal and playful interactions that are designed to inspire experimentation, exploration, and potential embodied conversations with other interviewers. Anywhere uses a series of simple games to structure these interactions, which allows people in different locations to work together and collaborate on a joint goal. In its entirety, the Anywhere sculpture has three different levels of aesthetic experience, which we are calling art states. These states include a minimal state, a shadow state, and a color state. Interactors must play or interact with the sculptures in order to transition them through the various art states. The experience is cyclical in nature with no beginning and no ending. Interactors can come and go at any time, leaving the sculptures in any art state until someone else, in any of the locations, decides to engage with the work. The sculptures can be experienced or interacted with alone, with a friend, or with a stranger from another city or even another country. The sculptures are designed to encourage alternative forms of communication that do not rely heavily on a common language. Anywhere encourages people to discover new ways of interacting and challenges standard voice and screen driven telematic paradigms. The sculptures use color, light fluctuations, vibrotactile feedback, and sound cues as primary modes for communication. This enables embodied experience to find a place in distal communication, and requires people to discover more creative ways of communicating intention, presence, and willingness to engage. Anywhere rewards this creative communication with different aesthetic experiences ranging from interpretively open to goal-driven success states.
That was a video available at shinyspinning.com and it describes the Anywhere installation. And here is Jane Tingley in conversation with Darren Copeland. Uh, there are three objects that look exactly alike. They do exactly the same thing at the exact same time. And they're designed to be in three different locations in the world so that people can interact with each other through the sculptures as a um, and it's not a, a video based at all. It's an object. So people are actually interact physically um, by playing and touching lights and moving around the sculptures. And the idea is that they get to interact with each other through the bodies of the sculpture. Um, I guess central to anywhere is this idea that we would like people to um, not rely solely on voice and vision. Like we'd like to sort of bring the body into interacting with technology so that we could learn how to interact with each other in different ways, I guess, through technology. You kind of referred to sculpture having a body. What do you mean by that? Well, the sculpture itself um, is actually almost the same size as a, well, it's actually larger than a human body, but it's about six feet tall. So I guess when we, when I talk about it as the body of the sculpture, I'm, I'm simply um, trying to sort of refer to the physicality of the sculpture. So it's designed uh, with touch points, uh, there's lights, um, there's vibrotactile feedback. So it has a number of sort of interactive surfaces. And so when people are interacting, they're interacting with those surfaces and with each other through the surfaces, if that makes any sense. Right. And it involves people's touch and different senses than, than just sound and light. Uh, yeah, there's sound, light, uh, like I said, vibrotactile feedback. So um, there's parts that vibrate. So for example, there's this piece, uh, part of the sculpture that we call uh, the handshake. And so I guess for us, we were trying to think about ways that people could touch each other through the sculptures without actually touching. Because I mean, right now, a lot of our technologies are based on screens and keyboards and microphones. So uh, we can see each other, but we can't literally touch each other. So we were trying to imagine what that might be like. Um, so this handshake is in the center of the sculpture. And when one person touches it, it starts to vibrate just lightly. And uh, then if somebody else in another location were to touch the same interface, the vibra vibration inter uh, sort of becomes a bit stronger, it increases. And then if a third person touches the handshake in yet another location, it starts to vibrate even more. So it's sort of this idea of um, touching with this sort of vibro sort of acknowledgement of the touch. It seems to me that in our culture, we're trying to reach out all the time through telecommunications. And we're trying to have these interactions. You even see things where people have touched the screen um, that in a sense, could we be moving towards these things where we do get vibro feedback uh, as part of these, these virtual experiences in our, in our everyday life? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's inevitable. I mean, up until now, um, technology's had a very specific form. Um, and, you know, even video games, which is what a lot of um, interactive scenarios are designed for. Video games used to be sitting, staring at a screen with, with the remote in your hands, pressing buttons. And, you know, in the, in the aughts, you start to have, you know, things like the Wii and different types of interfaces that start to get um, developed so that we can get people moving because we want to get the, the body actually physically moving around rather than being, than being passive, sitting in a chair, staring at a screen. 
Uh, you'll also notice that like in video games, sometimes the, the controller itself starts to vibrate and shake in, in relation to things that are happening on the screen. So I think it's naturally, it's happening quite naturally that we're, we're beginning to introduce the body more into these technologies. And you can see it with um, stuff like VR, where you're trying to get uh, gloves that can give you a bit of vibration, like vibrotactile feedback in the tips of your fingers. So you get that sensation that you're actually there. So I think it's definitely something that we're beginning to think through. And I know a lot of artists are very interested in ways of bringing the body into these virtual experiences. Um, as a way of sort of addressing the full body, which is the full experience that we have. Um, the terminology I'd use is uh, embodiment, which basically means that sort of that sense of being within yourself. Uh, right now, technology doesn't really adequately address that. Um, but I feel as though, I mean, there's artists right now who are trying to learn how to email scent and smell and stuff like that. Like uh, there's a, a growing interest in ways in which we can start to engage that full, the breadth of human experience and that sense of embodiment. And for your work, uh, like the work you've done in the past is, is uh, I don't know if it's always had vibro feedback, I don't recall it having that. Um, is that introducing that element, taking uh, the interactive, you know, areas that you were exploring before to another level or another place like does it is it a more complex yeah. um situation now yeah well i think before a lot of my work was on that fine line of responsive versus interactive um so you know my my old piece plant ipod installation that one i would say it was a very responsive installation we were using sound and the mover the body of the the person who was in the space would move through the space and sort of share sound experience, acoustic experiences with the plants. Um, other works I've done also work, uh, use sound, like my piece Recollect, um, but this one was truly interactive. Um, once again, the body of the viewer moves through the space and pushes sounds with their body. So it was always a hands-off type of experience where the, the viewer sort of walks into an environment and explores and sort of has this private personal experience, if that makes any sense. Whereas with Anywhere, we were really interested in, uh, so also with Anywhere, I, I actually decided to work with a game designer. Um, I should probably say this now, Anywhere is a, a collaborative piece. Uh, with Dr. Cindy Peremba, who is a game designer, as well as a software engineer, Marius Kintel. And so the reason why I sought out Cindy Peremba is because she, as a game designer, um, is very comfortable sort of uh, creating these sort of structured game scenarios. Um, how to, she understands game theory. She understands how to structure how people interact uh, within the game environment. Um, and so what we did was we spent a lot of time sort of thinking about when you have bodies that are not in the same space, how do they know that they're interacting with each other? How can they sort of figure out the difference between glitch and like when the, when the system glitches versus somebody actually say trolling <laughs> your experience or something like that? Um, how can we create scenarios where people actually feel this sense of connection with somebody they can't see, somebody they can't speak with. Um, how do we how do we create that connection? And so we spent a lot of time really thinking about 
how to structure the interaction. And so, and touching was a very big part of Anywhere from the very beginning. Um, it's fully a sculpture as opposed to an environment. And uh, yeah, it was very important to us that we start to introduce more complex uh, interactive experiences. Is the, do you think the worlds of gaming and art are coming closer and closer together? I think in certain ways they are. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you've got your, you know, larger sort of big games, um, but there's a lot of really interesting artists who are making, I guess, works of game as opposed to works of art, um, sort of game projects that might not fit into a, you know, a gaming traditional gaming scenario, maybe you wouldn't necessarily play it on PlayStation, but a lot of our artists are working with game platforms, they're working with games as mediums. So I think there's aspects of gaming that's certainly um, very, very much art. Um, actually, in I think Ars Electronica last year, there was a game that was uh, that received one of the one of the prizes. It's called Everywhere, and it's just a fantastic sort of exploration of space, and you can get really, really small. And yeah, so I think that definitely um, games are very much art form or art. Um, and I think that a lot of artists are also playing with game engines as well and sort of changing them and making them into artworks that are more traditional. So I think there's um, people on both sides. And so there's a really nice um, mixture of of both game artists and visual artists sort of working in that field. Do you find that the expectations of people in the visual arts and the galleries and such are much different um, in how they measure value in an artwork versus how that's done with people that whose focus is on gaming? Um, I'm going to shift the, the question just a little bit because um, for us, because I feel like if, if an art uh, an art audience is open to contemporary expressions of you know digital experiences, I feel as though there's a lot of welcome. Um, I, I think it depends on your approach and what you value uh, when you go to see art. Um, and I think sometimes the gaming. Um, I remember one time we were uh, we'd created this game. Uh, in collaboration with uh, Bart Simon and Lynn Hughes and a bunch of people at, at Concordia University. And we were showing it, it was called Propinquity and we showed it at Indiecade. And uh, we were visiting um, a friend who's like a hardcore gamer and we told her a little bit about Propinquity and she was like, no, that's not a game. <laughs> She's like, that's just silliness. Like, I can't, I can't recognize that. Like, and she was sort of one of those people who played every day and it was like a full on thing. So I think it really depends on who your audience is and, and what they value. Uh, but for me, one thing I thought was very interesting. And so Cindy and I, we did a lot of actual, what we call play testing, um, which is a, a, a concept you don't really use a lot in the art world, but this is where you introduce, where you test interactive scenarios with, your users and sort of observe as they interact with, with uh, your interactive scenario. And then afterwards you ask them questions and you figure out ways that you can refine it to make it more intuitive or to make it more easy to play or whatever it is. Uh, so we did a lot of this and we brought in um, 
a lot of user testers or play testers who had a variety of a uh, variety of backgrounds. So that includes hardcore gamers and uh, like painters and really traditional artists. And then we had people in the middle. And one of the things we discovered um, was that the people who were really traditional in art really had a hard time even reading what I would think were very um, obvious cues. So for example, uh, if you see a red light in a system, I think a lot of people will identify that red light as sort of a negative or like you should stop. Or if you see a green light, it's go or a yellow light's a warning. Like there's certain things that, uh, certain cues that we take socially. Um, but I remember we were doing this one play test uh, with somebody who was a painter and they were just enjoying the red color because of its expressiveness. You know, and it was it was really interesting for me to think about that, that that some people just don't think about media in the same way and that color could be pure expression. And so this piece, what made it so complicated for us was that we wanted to show it in art galleries. So that means we want an art audience to be looking at it. Yet often the art audience who were more. Uh, who were less technologically, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a large scope of people in the art audience. Some are very technologically inclined and some are not, but the ones who are not really had a rough time uh, sort of tapping in to what it was that we were trying to get them to do. Whereas people who were comfortable with games got it instantly. And it was really fascinating to me how it really comes out comes down to your your literacy in terms of uh, interacting with computer systems. Um, so what we did with Anywhere um, was that we also built in these really, really aesthetic states. Um, so there's three states. I guess I should probably describe Anywhere in its entirety because it has three what we call art states. There's the minimal art state, which refers to minimalist art. And then we had a shadow state which refers to, you know, works by artists like Cornelia Parker or, you know, artists who use shadow play and, and um, really strong shadow work in their work. And then there was the color state, which is, it referred to, say, James Terrell, that type of stuff. And so the games that we created uh, allows allow the player or the players, the distributed interactors, to transform the work from each of the art states. And so you engage in these interactive scenarios in order to transform the sculpture. So, but what was also very important was that the aesthetics of the sculpture and the way it functioned visually um, could also hold its own as an art object in and of itself. So if we were to have an art audience who, for example, was not that technologically inclined, they could uh, sort of approach this piece like an artwork and observe the expressiveness of color and form and shape without necessarily having to jump in and, and change the sculpture. And there was no beginning or ending, which meant that means that anybody can jump in at any time, jump out at any time. They can leave the sculpture in the shadow state and it could stay that way for a week. And then somebody could jump in again and transform it into another state and it can stay that way for a while. There's no one way that this sculpture exists. It's constantly changing and hopefully it's appealing to both an art and a gaming audience. And so what we were trying to do is really find that middle place where both audiences could, could engage. It seems to be that with a, a visual art context, you have um, a kind of 
Well, uh, there is a, an interesting time limitation that people seem to bring to it themselves that because they've been programmed to just look at a painting or or a sculpture and then walk away and move on, uh, like the, the, the amount of time can be very short. You're addressing this by this way of having it constantly evolving and and there not being a beginning, middle or an end. Or... It's interesting because once you start to create, like one of the things that games does really well, or a, a, a game that, a good game, I guess, or maybe in, uh, there's, certain, there's a game called uh, Journey. I can't remember who the, the name of the person who created it, but this is a good example. Journey within the first 10 minutes, like usually a, a game will have that first level that teaches you how to play the game. So games should have that ability to teach you how to how to use it in order to engage. And then as you engage, things get more and more complex. Um, but there still has to be a willingness to learn that game. And I think what you're talking about is that's that time when you reach an artwork. And if you're maybe not so literate with how to interact with interactive systems, it's asking a lot of you, I guess, to get you to start to understand it and you touch things. And so we tried as best as we could to make anywhere teach people how to use it itself, I suppose. Like, and, and we did a lot of play testing where we worked with like the form of the piece. We worked with um, how the games um, unraveled or through time, um, how, what, and like each level of the game or each level getting progressively more difficult, you know, not asking people to learn more than one type of thing at a time and being able to reuse and refine that same interaction throughout everything. So we were definitely, we, we definitely followed a lot of those, those approaches, but at the end of the day, if you're not comfortable with learning, having a system teach you, it's going to be lost on you to a certain extent, I think. And I remember, and and also it works in the other way too. When we were play testing, uh, we were play testing the handshake, and this one uh, play tester kept on touching the handshake and didn't look around the sculpture to see anything else that was happening because he was so used to playing at arcades that it didn't occur to him to take a step back and look at the body of the sculpture and engage in another level of interactivity. So. Even the gamer people also sometimes uh, couldn't get past that first interactive stage that we set up. So it's it's really interesting, and I think um, it's been a really big challenge, and it's been really fascinating for me as an artist to work with a game designer and to figure out how you structure things and how you can teach people through repetition and consistency. Um, but at the end of the day, there's still those sort of those cases, those extreme cases on either end who might not be able to like the barrier of entry might be too high. Um, and that's something that I, I, I don't know how you get around that. Um, however, as I said before, I, I look at these sculptures as artworks in and of themselves. So I'm not so certain that playing the game is the only way to be with anywhere. In fact, if you play the games once and you play the games twice, then maybe the third time it's not so interesting. Um, and then you can start to appreciate it as um, a visual artwork as well. So it's really a mix of two things. I also understand that you had a composer involved in the project as well. And uh, I wanted to know uh, more about the role that music or sound plays in, the, uh, in, the, in this interaction. 
Yeah, well, sound is crucial. It's it's so crucial. So we worked with um, artist Alain Thibault. Um, he is a composer. Um, he also um, runs the Electra Festival in in Montreal um, and the Biennial. And he's he's really amazing. We had a really fun time working with him because we're in Ontario and he's in Quebec and. Uh, and so we ended up videotaping ourselves with stickies and making funny noises with our mouths as we were trying to like show him what the interactive scenario should look like. And then we'd email him the video and then he would like replace our little funny sounds with actual sounds and then email it back to us. And then he'd give us all these different scenarios and it, it worked really, really well. Uh, it was surprisingly well. Um, the audio is absolutely crucial. Um, and once again, though, I mean, with all audiences, it's it's hard to get everything at 100%. So some audiences don't, who aren't used to hearing or listening for, for cues of what to do um, might tune out the audio. But in general, um, most feedback that we received is that the audio is absolutely crucial. So every time you touch the sculpture, uh, there's, if there's a sensor, uh, there's an audio cue that lets you know what you've done. Um, if you don't do it correctly, there's audio cues that sort of indicate that you need to try again. Uh, the handshake, uh, uh, that's, that, that piece is a really important audio cue to let you know that you've begun the interactive scenario. So yeah, um, we also have certain sounds that get faster and faster and faster the closer you get to solving the, the puzzle and slower and slower and slower the further you get from solving the puzzle. So we're really trying to figure out ways that audio can be used to communicate really, really clear um, ideas. So it's mainly the, the glue behind cueing the audience and guiding them. I think so. I think so. I mean, light alone is not enough. Um, I mean, we're visual, ocular centric, so we're very used to seeing things and, and, and deciphering patterns that we visually see. But audio makes something more immersive. It, it sort of pulls the whole body into that experience of, of interactivity. So I think it's absolutely crucial. Yeah. What about people that are neither gamers or neither... Uh visual artists or you know people used gallery goers uh what about those kinds of audience members have you had interactions with people with the public uh with that kind of background let's face it most millennials are very familiar with technology so i feel like the millennial age group i mean you'd have to be really unplugged to not well no that's not entirely true i mean there there are a lot of millennials who aren't that, that don't play games at all. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that a lot of younger people are quite used to interacting with systems of some sort, whether it's their iPad or their computer. I think there's a bit of a digital literacy that's, um, that's not necessarily across the board, but it's more prevalent than, say, uh, older audience, I guess, Generation X. <laughs> um, so I found that if you bring in children, to this piece, they get it. <laughs> and it's like, no matter who, whether or not they play games or not, they just get it. They're, they're used to decoding systems. Um, I, I found the same with uh, people who were 20s and young, late, early 30s. They tend to be quite quick. I mean, there's always uh, exceptions, but it's sort of the older audience that can sometimes not 
necessarily pick up the interactive scenario. But as I said before, that's not the only thing that anywhere has to offer. So it, it's it's also a very aesthetic experience. So I feel as though there are levels of um, aesthetics that I think people can appreciate. But in terms of, um, I'm always interested. I'm always interested in seeing how people interact because I feel like um, there's always new ways of interacting with this piece. So it's kind of hard to answer the question because I've also only shown the piece really in an art gallery setting. So most people who have engaged with it have had a, an interest in the arts at the very least. However, with my play tests, that was with the general public and those are the people we observed. And um, I've already sort of explained what I observed in that sense. So yeah, I'm always interested to see what people, how people interact though, because maybe we can tweak something to make it just that much easier. <laughs> you know, you know, it's always a work in progress, which is fascinating about this type of work. And also uh, at NASA with the exhibit coming up uh, that we're going to, be doing a variation the way it was presented before by having the sculptures in the same environment and not being in in uh, separated uh, places. Uh, um, so, what, which, um, how do you think that that will present different uh, challenges and and opportunities, perhaps? Yes. Well, um, so in fact, I think what I believe we're doing is we're going to have two in the same space, which people can access via online from any, any location. So um, in the past, we've actually play tested the three objects. Well, when we did our videos, we, te we tested all three objects in the same place. And it's quite a fun experience, I have to say, because people are talking to each other and, and yeah, it's just, it's a very fun experience in that sense. So I, I, I expect that having the two objects in the room, will be um, engaging and a fun sort of experience for people. Um, I think that the, the downside of having them both in the room is that sometimes people stop to just um, experience the work and just experience it as art. They, they get into the game so much so that that's all it is. <laughs> and it can be pretty funny. Um, however, with the distributed location where somebody could be in another location, um, it provides a really interesting opportunity where we have more of a hybrid experience where you have people who are live, who are interacting and able to speak to each other. And then you're going to have this phantom other person who's going to be jumping in and playing, uh, which I think may cause confusion or it may cause excitement. Um, what I experienced with the last show was people, because we had a really nice infographic on the wall that explained uh, the, the whole story. And um, another thing I should say is that each location has its own color. So we had this set up in Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. And Ottawa was pink and Toronto was blue and Montreal was yellow. So every time you saw a blue light on your sculpture, you knew that somebody in Toronto was touching and interacting and you could interact with that person. So what we're going to have is we're going to have the two sculptures in the nasa space. So let's just say the yellow and the pink one. And you're going to all of a sudden start to see these blue lights and that's going to help you understand that, yeah, okay, so this is somebody potentially from the Netherlands, or this is somebody who's at the booth that's set up over there who's interacting. And it becomes um, kind of joyful and kind of odd. And what we did discover is that people do understand, like, that, yes, this is another human being. 
And once they make that connection, it, it's kind of interesting to see people uh, playing with each other and getting competitive with somebody they can't see. So it's 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 a curious it's a curious experience. Yes. Now I I understand that the third one doesn't the third element doesn't necessarily need to use the sculpture so that the that one can interact with it using your computer. Um, what kind of um, how is that experience different then? Well, I mean, Anywhere itself is an extremely physical experience. Like we've designed everything to really get people moving. We want people, you know, reaching up, bending down, looking around, touching things. So that's that's a large part. You know, your body is bathed in light when the lights are on. You know, it's it's just a very sort of physical experience. The moment you're on your computer, it's less so. Um, however, the reason why we ended up introducing this element was we, we we created what we call the web emulator, which is basically a way of emulating a sculpture. And we did it so that we could test the sculptures without having to actually turn them on um, because and actually physically play the games. Um, and so at first it was just a tool. But when we showed it in Toronto, Montreal and Ottawa, uh, there was that extraordinary heat wave that happened this last summer. Um, and the gallery in Montreal actually got so hot I had a piece, a thing that was held on with glue gun and it actually melted the glue gun, like the glue. <laughs> so there was no air conditioning in this one gallery. And so I was just like, you know what? I, I can't let anybody be in this gallery because it's too hot. So I closed the show in Montreal for one day. And that particular day I went off to Ottawa and I brought my computer and people were playing and somebody made a comment about how Montreal is not playing. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll just hook up the emulator. And I started playing with the people and it was really fun <laughs> and I could see people responding to me and I was like, and of course on the computer, I can move faster than people can physically move through space. <laughs> and so, I don't know, I was just sort of playing with them and people were getting really competitive with me, but it was like my little secret and nobody knew. And uh, yeah, it worked, it worked out really well. And so afterwards we were like, you know what, this emulator is actually a powerful, powerful tool. So what we've done is we've, uh, we've made it better for this show and this is going to be the first time the emulator officially sits in for a sculpture and so a part of me will be also just seeing how it works because i really don't know i mean this whole thing has been a real big experiment from the very beginning anyway so yeah so i'm, I'm expecting it to work out quite well um, and what's really cool is it's a web page so you can just email it to somebody and say log on and then somebody can join you and a large part of anywhere was just this question how can we feel feelings of friendship or camaraderie or how can we play with somebody who you don't share a, a location with and and how and if you don't have language how do you interact with that person and i think that game i mentioned earlier journey does it really really well because they eliminate um, text language like you don't text you don't do anything you just have this peep that you make but somehow you're able to experience this this sense of being and playing with somebody else just based on how the game itself is designed and so anywhere was very curious about you know how do we eliminate language or if we were to limit eliminate language how could we facilitate play and um, so you're going to have people who can't call each other up to talk they're going to have to find ways to communicate through the sculptures so it's um that's the that's the heart of what anywhere is so it's kind of exciting that we can try it out with you guys
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that aspect. Uh, also, uh, maybe we uh, perhaps promote the uh, uh, online participation more and uh, that uh, maybe random people will appear um, as a third yeah. element. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be really fun. It'd be really fun to see how that would work. I mean, the one issue is that we need people, only one emulator can run at the to- at a time. So we'll okay. just have to make right. sure that whoever is logs on has to also log off. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. Other than that, I mean, it could be played from your living room, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting thing because we're we running this in the winter time, where where we are based. Uh, sometimes people want to be at NASA but can't get there. Um, you know, even if they live in the area. One last uh, thing was I was interested to know that since the time that you've been uh, teaching at in Stratford at the University of Waterloo. What, oh, how has that influenced um, the way that you approach your work? I, I hear a lot of different ways of talking about your work than I, than I remember in the past. And, and I was curious to know more about how the environment there has impacted. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess, so Stratford now is no longer um, Stratford campus it's now a school in and of itself and it's the Stratford School of Interaction Design and Business and um, one of the things as an artist when I first got hired there I I made new media pieces my work was you know straddling responsive and interactive I was moving more and more towards interactivity and so when I when I teach in Stratford I was able to tap that type of of thinking. But what's also been very interesting though is through my collaborations in Stratford. uh, So for example, I've uh, taught courses with um, like people who actually do interaction design and and UX UX design and and, like scientists and uh, other and designers and actually able to participate in actual, the actual study of um, interaction design and how you study people. Um, how you test scenarios, and then also working with uh, Cindy Peremba, um, working with a game designer and learning about how you actually design games um, and how completely controlled it is and organized and well thought out. I mean, it was never something I ever really thought about. And as an artist, I feel um, my practice is a lot is a lot more um, it's more fluid in a certain way. Um, you know, you sort of build, you work on this idea that really fascinates you and you work in your studio and you're alone and you develop a body of work and then you put it into the world and it is what it is, right? And whereas, you know, with with user-centric design or human-centric design or game design, you actually bring in your audience to test your ideas to make sure that your ideas work because if, if they don't work, I mean, your game's not going to work very well. And... Um, I think it was that structure that started to fascinate me. And then I started bringing it into other aspects of my, my more arty installations, like Recollect, for example, um, I, I, a piece that I did with artist Michal Seta, who's a sound designer and an amazing artist. And, and so at one point I set up the piece and I said, you know, how about we just do a play test of some sort? And, and this was after being at Stratford for a couple of years. And so we actually set it up, we invited people over, and we 
did post-interaction interviews and got a sense of how people were generally feeling. And then we actually analyzed our artwork and tried to, you know, change the programming and, you know, highlight certain things that people sort of commented on. And so it just helped me think differently about interactivity and the art experience and how you can design experiences um, has become really fascinating for me. Um, and I would definitely attribute that to all my colleagues, working with the different colleagues at the Stratford School of Interaction Design and Business and actually being in observation booths, you know, like a room with a one-way mirror and you're watching people interact with that thing that you created and you can see how they can't, they can't, they're not doing the thing you want them to do because the actual form factor's off. Like, because it, it doesn't, it's not easy to touch or it's not easy to interact with. And so then you're like, oh, okay. So then you just take it home, rebuild it, put it back in there again, test people and all of a sudden they can interact it uh, in the way that you would wanted them to interact with. So it's just, to me, that's a really fascinating proposition and it's become a really important part of how I think about um, interactivity in general. And, and when I look at interactive art and my expectations of interactivity, even if it's in an art context, like I don't, I'm not saying make art games. I'm just saying that there's a really interesting overlap there. And when it does happen, it is possible to really sculpt that interactive experience almost as though it were material, which is fascinating to me as an artist. It seems to me that the, the level of sophistication in the gaming world with interactivity is is much deeper than artists in the exhibition world have you know, typically been able to uh, touch upon is that is that a fair assumption i'm not i don't know it's hard to say because i i actually um i curated a show actually called interaction <laughs> um for lack of a better name and uh it was here in kitchener at the museum in downtown kitchener and um i brought in David um, Rokeby, um, who is a, a seminal interaction artist, um, a Canadian artist who has been working in interaction design for, I don't know, since like interactive art installations since, you know, the 80s. And he, um, he and I talked about sculpting the interactive space. And he is actually really aware of all of the things I was talking about. And, and he was talking about how he created this one interactive piece uh, that had a video and uh, you had to stand in a particular particular place. I wish I could remember the name of the piece, but he was basically saying that he noticed while he was observing people interacting with this piece that they always got bored like 10 seconds before the thing that's supposed to engage you into the further interaction. And so he was observing people and figuring out when when people's attention span ended and, and he figured out ways that he could like add maybe a sound that might make people a bit more curious and might make people take a second look. And so he talked a lot about how he spends time with his interactive um, installations and how he does structure that interactive space. Uh, and it's very, very clear and focused for him. So I think that it certainly exists. It doesn't exist in the same level as it does with games, but I would say that um, people who work with interactivity really have to um, engage with that experience in order for their interactive scenarios to actually function so I, I don't like it's definitely more sophisticated in that games really need like you really need to understand a game in order to play the game otherwise it doesn't work 
Um, whereas an art installation, if maybe you don't get it, it's okay because it's art, you know, on a certain level. And um, that space is supposed to be ambiguous to a certain level because we want people to have different experiences and it's, it can be a lot uh, looser. I mean, I think the, the boundaries of what makes good art is very different than the boundaries of what makes good game, I guess. Um, so I think for that reason, it might be more sophisticated. Um, uh, but I, I, I do, based on just the conversations with the artists that I had curated into this show, I was really, really intrigued um, by how people approached that interactivity and how they sculpted it. Um, and I think that a lot of them were really aware of what they were doing. So there's definitely an awareness. It's just, it doesn't have to exist in the same way, I suppose. That was Jane Tingley, an artist based in the uh, Waterloo, Stratford area of Ontario. Her interactive artwork, Anywhere, is on exhibit at the Nason North Media Arts Centre in South River, Ontario, from January 17th to April 1st. 2019, and it'll be shown during the Deep Wireless Festival of Radio and Transmission Art. And uh, to take us out, I have a piece from the Deep Wireless Radio Art compilation that we were going to listen to. You can listen to past editions of the compilation. Uh, there's uh, 13 volumes of radio art there, uh, um, four or five of which are in the NASA SoundCloud page, and the others as under the Media Archive on uh, nasa.ca. The 14th edition will be out soon in January uh, with the start of the next festival. But in the meantime, here's a piece from last year by Pierre-Luc Senecal. It's called Urban Gardens. It was composed with uh, recordings from a trip that Senecal made in Europe where he was exploring different public gardens as well as other gathering places such as airports, train stations, and malls.
That was Urban Gardens by Pierre-Luc Senecal, composer and sound artist from Montreal. You've been listening to Making Waves on WGXC Wayfarm. Making Waves is produced monthly by New Adventures in Sound Art in South River, Ontario. Thanks for listening.